Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. I'm Matt Shepard. I'm joined this week by Professor Lisa Kerr, the creator of our criminal law module in Law 201-701, Introduction to Canadian Law. We're going to be talking about a difficult subject, a unanimous Supreme Court of Canada decision in May ordering a new trial for Bradley Barton, the Ontario trucker, accused of killing Indigenous woman Cindy Gladu. We'll be talking about that decision and a split between the justices on whether Barton should face trial for manslaughter or first-degree murder. As Lisa describes it, this decision is also an opportunity to explore and explain the current state of sexual assault law in Canada. This podcast contains graphic details that may be disturbing to listeners. This podcast is also not legal advice and is being presented for informational purposes only. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is brought to you by the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online certificate in law offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more at takelaw.ca. So we should start this with a content one. We should, yeah. We're, we're about to talk about uh, a very uh, difficult, a very troubling case in terms of the facts. It's a case that involves... Um, the death of an indigenous woman um, in in very distressing circumstances, um, and so some of our listeners might want to uh, decide whether this is the right show for them to listen to. Right. Yeah. Uh, so we are talking about the Supreme Court. We're talking about the Barton case and a very recent decision that came down that's essentially saying that there, there's going to be a new trial for manslaughter. Exactly. So let me just see if I can introduce the victim in this case. So Cindy Gladue, uh, as I said, was an Indigenous woman. She was a woman with uh, links to her Cree and Métis communities. Um, she grew up and, and lived on the homeland of the Métis and of Treaty 8 and Treaty 6 territories. And uh, she was a mother of three children, a daughter, a sister, an aunt, a cousin, and a friend. And I'm quoting here from the factum of the Institute for the Advancement of Aboriginal Women and Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, the LEAF factum that was filed in this case. Um, and uh, those were just two of the interveners that had a major impact on how this case was was litigated and ultimately uh, addressed in the appellate courts. So what happened uh, to Miss Gladue is that um, uh, she met the defendant in this case, Bradley Barton, and on an evening that they spent together in a hotel room in Edmonton, Miss um, Gladue uh, died from loss of blood. Uh, and uh, that was caused by an 11 centimeter uh, cut on the inside of her vagina. And the Crown's theory at the trial uh, was that Mr. Barton had caused that wound and that he had done that by using a sharp object or weapon uh, on Miss Gladue. Uh, and that when he did that, he had intent to to kill. Um, and so this would have uh, amounted to murder, um, and that murder would have been classified as first degree and would have been subject to a mandatory life sentence uh, with 25 years before parole. Now, the Crown at this trial also said in the alternative that Mr. Barton had committed uh, the lesser and included offense of unlawful act manslaughter. Um, so that's basically causing death um, in the course of a sexual assault. And uh, Mr. Barton winds up acquitted of both murder and manslaughter. And um, there's, 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 by his own evidence, 
Um, uh, he had sex with Miss Gladue in that hotel room. Um, by his own evidence, he he used um, his hand very aggressively on her, and that that caused bleeding. Um, and he said that she uh, went into the hotel bathroom, um, and that he then fell asleep, and that uh, he found her uh, dead the next morning in the hotel bathroom. Now, of course, we'll never hear from uh, Cindy Gladue uh, her own version of events from that evening. Um, but we are left with um, a number of questions uh, about what happened. And um, ultimately, the, uh, his, Mr. Barton's acquittal was appealed, and both the Alberta Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada have said that a new trial is warranted. The majority of the Supreme Court uh, would limit the new trial to just the manslaughter charge, and the dissent would have, would have allowed Mr. Barton to be retried on both murder and manslaughter. So... Um, there are many, many legal issues in this case, um, and there are many people with uh, a great deal of expertise on the case. Um, and so I'd really recommend to listeners who are interested in learning more um, to go to the Supreme Court of Canada website, look up the Barton case, read the full opinion, and look at the factums that were filed. You can go and click on those and read through them. There were just ex- there was extraordinary work done here um, by interveners, groups like the Aboriginal Women's Action Network. Work, the women of the Métis Nation, um, the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls filed a factum. Um, as I said, LEAF had a major impact in this case. And so all of the materials are there for you to, to read and learn how this, this very unusual and very distressing case happened. So you've mentioned it's an unusual case, and you are, uh, you're not only the creator and instructor of the criminal law module in Law 201, but you also teach criminal law to law students here at Queen's. And you mentioned uh, you want to make this case, you want to organize your criminal law class next year around this case. Why this case in particular? I do. And, I, you know, I'm sort of of two minds. On the one hand, um, it's it's so distressing, the facts of this case, that um, it might be it might be challenging to think about this case over a long period of time with my first year law students. Um, on the other hand, there are so many important structural systemic issues um, that this case uh, uh, reveals. So, you know, we know and talk a lot about uh, how Indigenous people are overrepresented in our prison system, right? We know that. Um, but what we sometimes know less about, although I think we're in the process, especially with the final report of the inquiry on murdered and missing Indigenous women coming out in recent days, um, we're learning more about how the criminal justice system doesn't just overpunish Indigenous people, it also underprotects them. And so this case, um, it, it, you know, shows us how 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 Miss Gladue was sort of not only underprotected um, in terms of uh, what may have led to her death, but also underprotected in the course of the trial. Um, so, you know, there were failures, uh, in my opinion, by each and every legal professional that was involved in this case. Um, and I mean to include the Crown Prosecutor, um, the trial judge, and defense counsel. Um, there were, and, and this is this is really uh, um, largely recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, failures in, in the substantive law and how the substantive law of sexual assault was handled. Uh, failures in how the victim and the victim's family were treated, uh, failures in the jury instruction. And although this issue wasn't wasn't discussed by the Supreme Court, there were, uh, in my view, failures in how uh, evidence was handled in the course of the trial. 
Um, so, so there's a lot to learn from this case. Um, and, uh, in terms of how to advance reconciliation in the context of the criminal justice system. Um, but it's also a case that teaches us a lot about criminal law, uh, and especially about uh, the law of sexual assault and um, many of the important reforms that we have implemented in recent decades in order to sort of bring the law of sexual assault from a largely misogynistic and sexist um, uh, treasure trove to a modern um, feminist dignity respecting uh, law of sexual assault. And a lot of this relates to what you are or are not allowed to say about people during a trial, correct? Yeah, so the really big issue that's at the core of what the majority does um, in its in its decision, what Justice Moldaver does in his decision, is um, is on this issue of what's called the rape shield provisions. So the rape shield provisions are, are found in, in Section 276 of the Criminal Code. And basically, these are rules that govern the admissibility of evidence about a complainant's prior sexual activities. So what that means is you can't just go into a court and talk about a complainant's sexual past. And, and, and you kind of have to turn your mind back to, to this sort of misogynist, sexist past of sexual assault law when cases would be litigated by referring to the fact that a complainant was not a virgin, by referring to the fact that she had had sex with this man before and that that was somehow relevant to whether she had consented on this occasion. I mean, all kinds of stuff you'd be shocked about um, if you read sexual assault cases from the really the bulk of the 20th century and before. Um, so what Section 276 says is you cannot rely on evidence of, it's not, you can't admit evidence of a complainant's prior sexual activity if you're going to use it to support a forbidden inference. And so there's two of these forbidden inferences that are set out in 276. Basically, you can't say that um, that sexual past uh, is relevant to whether she consented, and you can't suggest that it's relevant to whether she's worthy of belief, to whether she's credible. Those are called the twin myths. And um, those apply sort of irrespective of which party leads evidence. Um, and it's categorical. Now, there are times, there are rare uh, instances when, a, uh, when the past uh, sexual activity of a complainant might be relevant in very narrow ways, but you can't just bring that evidence in without getting a judge's permission in advance. So that's called a Section 276 hearing. And you have to go in front of the judge and say, yes, I want to refer to this. I want to refer to her, typically her, right, sexual past. But I want to do it for a narrow, legitimate reason that is not in support of one of these so-called rape myths. And right? that did not happen with Barton, which is one of the things the Supreme Court takes issue with. That did not happen. Um, what happened here is there was there were there were some, in my view, mistakes on both the part of the Crown Prosecutor and Defense Counsel. So the Crown Prosecutor, in its opening statement, uh, referred to the fact that Miss Gladue um, had met Mr. Barton the night before for paid sex. So they referred to that um, instead of. Um, thinking, you know, in what way is their prior sexual history, which is not much of a history, it's just one night before that they'd met one time. Um, you know, why am I referring to that? How is it relevant to the question of whether she consented on this night? Nobody paused and asked those questions. And that is what Section 276 is supposed to make us do. 
Um, now, so that was a fairly light reference in the in the opening statement, um, but defense counsel sort of took that slightly open door and opened it uh, even wider. And Mr. Barton, in his testimony, um, as the as Justice Moldaver put it, really flooded the jury with testimony about um, uh, his sexual experience with Miss Gladue the night before her death. So let me tell you a little bit about that evidence that Mr. Barton uh, gave in his testimony. And this is really what the Supreme Court was focused on um, in terms of what it said was inappropriate, right? absent to Section 276 hearing. Um, so Mr. Barton gave evidence that he and, and Ms. Gladue agreed on a price of $60 for, quote, everything on the first night, um, that they agreed on the same price on the second night, and that, quote, she knew what she was coming for, end quote. Um, Mr. Barton also testified that he considered the two nights as forming part of a continuing commercial transaction, that's his evidence, with supposedly similar sexual activities occurring on both, both nights. And further, Justice Moldaver says, defense counsel stressed that, quote, she's a prostitute and she's consenting to the sex, and that there were, quote, no groans of disagreement, in fact, only groans of agreement, and there were no signs that she was in disagreement. He reasonably believed she was consenting. Those are the submissions of defense counsel. Now, two big problems with that. One, there was never a 276 hearing, and there should have been. This was just material that we just, you know, asked the defendant about and that he testified about in front of the jury without ever pausing and saying, is this prior sexual activity from the night before, is it appropriate evidence given 276? Second, those submissions that defense counsel made, Justice Moldaver said, uh, were based on multiple errors of law. And so... To unpack that a little bit, I, I need to talk a little bit about the difference between a mistake of fact and a mistake of law. In a sexual assault trial, a defendant occasionally says, I thought she was consenting. You know, maybe the defendant even says, I understand now that she wasn't, but I had an honest but mistaken belief at the time that she was consenting. And that was part of his defense here. And... um that's basically suggesting that you didn't have mens rea, that you didn't have knowledge of an essential element of the offense, namely a lack of consent. And that can be a defense in our system. There are a number of important limits on it in the criminal code, but that can be a defense, and it's a mistake of fact defense, right? You were mistaken about a fact, the fact of whether she was consenting. So that can, in some circumstances, be a defense that can lead to acquittal of sexual assault, and in this case would mean that he did not commit manslaughter. But you are not allowed to build a defense like that based on a mistaken understanding of the law, right? It, it, the old saying, ignorance of the law is no defense. Right. This is an instance of that. And if we think back about those arguments the defense counsel made in closing submissions, right? Defense counsel stressing, she's a prostitute, she's consenting. There were no groans of disagreement. There were no signs she was in disagreement. Um, those kinds of arguments uh, were based on mistakes of law. And there were three main mistakes of law that the majority pointed to. The first was the notion of implied consent. Um, and this goes back to a really important case in this area called Ewanchuk. And Ewanchuk basically said 
that um, so for many years in the law, there was a requirement that a woman would uh, resist forcefully a sexual assault. That was actually required. Um, utmost resistance. If she didn't fight and kick and scream and try to run away, then the law said she was not sexually assaulted. What? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was talking about when I said it was a misogynistic and sexist area of law for many decades. Right. Um, that, uh, that, uh, and it's really based on the notion of, of what a U.S. scholar, Susan Estrick, called real rape. There's this notion that a real rape victim fights back. She screams. Now, we know that's, that's, that's a very erroneous understanding of how sexual assault actually happens and that many people will freeze in fear and will be silent in order to try and preserve their life out of fear. And so what you and Chuck said and held was that implied consent or passivity as consent or a lack of disagreement as consent was not consent, that the only kind of consent that is valid in Canada today is communicated consent, right? Affirmative consent through either words or action. It has to be affirmative. So passivity, silence, a lack of disagreement is not consent. And, and so Justice Moldaver is saying the defense was pointing to some notion of implied consent, and that was wrong. The second mistake of law that the defense was premised on was the notion of broad advance consent, right? This notion that there was some kind of continuing transaction between these two from night A to night B. That is not how consent works. I can consent on day one. That doesn't mean I'm consenting on day two. Right. Um, and so, um, so that's a mistake of law to suggest that, you know, they did something on Friday night and that means that he could do it again on Saturday night. That's obviously wrong. And then the third uh, mistake um, was the notion of uh, propensity to consent. Um, so the law today prohibits the inference that a complainant's prior sexual activities make it more likely that she consented to this sexual activity. Um, and I think this suggestion that she consented to whatever Mr. Barton said she consented to on night one meant that um, she had a propensity to say yes again. This is also false. You say you people can and we don't I mean, we might disbelieve him that she consented so clearly on night one. But um, even if she did, it means nothing in terms of whether she consented on night two. Right. Um, and again, if you look back in the history of the of the law of rape, um, you know, there was a rule and this was built into the legal doctrine that it was an element of the offense that the victim is not your spouse. What is that all about? Well, that meant that a man couldn't rape his wife. Um, the spousal exception was this notion that wives are in a permanent state of consent with respect to their husbands. And so it's this notion, right, that the modern law of sexual assault is all about, did this person consent on this occasion to these activities, right? So the notion, and, and did they affirmatively consent? You don't have to fight back. You don't have to not be the wife of the defendant. Um, there's nothing about you as a complainant, whether you're a sex worker, whether you're a virgin, any of these things are not relevant to that inquiry about 
A, whether you consented, or B, whether um, the defendant is able in those circumstances to advance a, a mistake of fact defense. This is all coming back to why this entire rape shield concept is so important, why references to someone's past history aren't relevant or necessary in court when you're trying these kinds of cases. Right. Well, I think there could be some limited circumstances within which um, we might want to refer to uh, past experiences between a complainant and an accused. Um, I don't want to say that door should be fully closed, but there should be a 276 hearing um, so that the trial judge and counsel can have a moment to pause and reflect and make sure that the reason they're adducing this evidence um, is an appropriate one, and it's not one based on a discredited rape myth. So let's talk about the dissenting opinion, because there was a majority opinion, which is a new trial for manslaughter, but there's also Supreme Court judges who are dissenting on this. Right. So Justices Abella and Karakatsanis dissented here, and, and they agreed with the majority judgment about the need for a new trial on manslaughter. They agreed with the majority about uh, the problems of the defense in terms of the sexual assault issues and the lack of a Section 276 hearing. So there's agreement on all of those issues um, from the uh, entire court. Um, what the dissent would have done differently is they would have also ordered a new trial on the murder charge. B basically, remember that the issue of whether this was a murder as opposed to manslaughter turned primarily on this issue of expert evidence about the cause of the wound. So the Crown brought in an expert who said um, this 11-centimeter wound, uh, I think, was caused by an object. That would have meant, if you accepted that expert's evidence that Mr. Barton used a weapon. Right. And when you use a weapon in that way, it's obvious that you would have either intent to kill or an intent to cause serious bodily harm knowing it's likely to result in death. And that is the mens rea for murder. Right. Um, this would have also been a murder uh, committed um, in the course of a sexual assault. That makes it murder in the first degree. Okay. So the most serious kind of um, crime in our society. And uh, the majority wanted, so, so I, think, I think the majority said, well, listen, that issue of whether the jury believed the expert, right, found the expert evidence to be convincing, that's sort of a separate issue than these, uh, than these other errors I've pointed to with respect to how sexual assault was handled. So the majority said, you know, the acquittal for murder um, can stand because that was just a matter of a jury disbelieving uh, an expert, and that's, you know, there's nothing inappropriate happened there, and that's the appropriate function of a jury to decide, uh, make findings of fact in that way. What the dissent said was what went wrong at this trial was, was really more than the mishandling of these issues of consent. Um, and what went wrong here uh, really permeated or infected the entire proceeding. And so what were they talking about? Well, there were not only unrestricted references to the victim's sexual history in this case. Um, there were also multiple dozens of occasions where the Crown and Defense Counsel referred to Miss Gladue as a, quote, native prostitute. And, um, uh, and, and, and the judge gave no specific warning to the jury about that. So never explained to the jury, you know, anything about why was she being referred to that to in that way what was relevant about the fact that she was 
uh, someone who had done sex work or that she was an indigenous person? What was relevant about that? You know, in truth, nothing. Um, and yet she's referred to as this in this way. And of course, I think at this point in our history, many of us would think of native as an inappropriate word as well. Right. Many of us think of prostitute as an inappropriate word. So we've got this almost slur that's being used against her by the legal professionals in front of the jury. So I think there's a sense that that, that left a real risk that the jury was going to draw prejudicial and stereotypical assumptions about indigenous women who were working in the sex trade as they um, decided not only the manslaughter, but also the issues they had to decide with respect to murder. So the dissent said um, that there were sort of devastatingly prejudicial effects um, from from these these phrases that were used and the trial judges um, uh, failure to to address those phrases and that the effects of this error that we can't sort of neatly cabin off the effects to just the manslaughter charge that they must have infected also the jury's reasoning with respect to murder. And I think, you know, I said at the outset, and it's worth repeating that the this is another aspect of this case that's very unusual is the extraordinary contribution that um, interveners made in this case. And, you know, now that we've talked about it a bit, you can really understand that the Crown and defense and trial judge, in many ways, failed to protect the interests of Cindy Gladue. And um, legal issues really weren't argued properly at the trial. Evidence wasn't handled properly. Um, the jury wasn't instructed properly. And so that leaves a real vacuum in our system. It's really the Crown prosecutor who's supposed to be sort of protecting the interests of victims and sort of seeing justice be served. And the trial judge has a role to play. And there's ethical obligations that bind the defense as well. And so there were there were problems with all of that. And so what that meant was that in order for the appeal to be done properly, you really needed interveners more than you usually need interveners to come and make those arguments on behalf of Miss Gladue in, in ways that the Crown really couldn't, because the Crown hadn't made those, hadn't done things properly either. And so groups like LEAF, groups like Aboriginal Legal Services, you know, these groups, they show up unpaid, uncompensated, do this work, many academics volunteering their time, many community leaders volunteering their time in order to ensure that the appropriate legal arguments get in front of our appellate courts and that this 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 trial gets corrected. And so, and so, you know, and when you read the final decision from the Supreme Court of Canada, you don't necessarily see that labor and the trauma and the labor and everything else that these people took on in order to make this contribution to this case. And so, so it's really worth remembering the contribution and, and the, the analysis and the argumentation and the insight that many of those groups brought to this case are all over the majority opinion both in the Alberta Court of Appeal decision and in the majority and dissenting opinions of the Supreme Court of Canada. So they these groups made an extraordinary contribution. And, and so I'll just refer uh, in closing to um, the argument that was made by uh, Jonathan Rudin and his colleagues at Aboriginal Legal Services. Um, they talked about um, this issue of how Miss Gladue was referred to as a, quote, native prostitute. Um, and at one point, this was a very compelling submission, and I, I showed this argument in my class because you can watch the webcast uh, of the Supreme Court of Canada hearings, and I, sh I showed this argument being made in class, and it was really powerfully done. So Aboriginal Legal Services said this, in this case, the identity of Miss Gladue was not in question. Therefore, there was no need to refer to her by anything other than her name. Repeatedly describing her as native would suggest to the jury that there was something about her background that was relevant to the case, but the jury was never told what that was. 
And this leads to the problematic outcome that the jury was left to ascribe whatever meaning they wish to her description without guidance from the court. Um, so I think that submission was very much um, picked up on uh, in the majority to a degree, but certainly by uh, the dissent um, in terms of these really problematic references. And, and um, yeah, so uh, as I said, it's a, it's a difficult case to talk and think about. Um, but, um, uh, and, you know, I, I, I feel for Miss Gladue's family having to return to a trial court now. Um, you know, Miss Gladue was, um, died in 2011. Mm-hmm. It's now 2019. And they're headed back to trial. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think there's been incredible work done in the, in the appeal context here by both judges and, and counsel and, and community leaders. But it's hard, um, even, even, even in the face of that incredible work, to say that this case was really anything but a failure. Thank you for taking the time for this today. Thank you. Thanks to Lisa Kerr. Criminal Law is one of many modules in Law 201-701, Introduction to Canadian Law. If you're interested in the connections between Indigenous people and the law in Canada, you may want to look into Law 202-702, Aboriginal Law, taught by Professor Hugo Chaquette. You can learn more about both these courses at takelaw.ca. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton, who's also a staff member here at Queen's Law. You can find out more about her music at meganhamiltonmusic.wordpress.com. Original illustrations for this podcast are by Valerie Desrochers. You can find her work at vdesrochers.com. Thanks for listening.